Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to Killer Queens. Hey. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right. Well, today we are going to be covering a doozy. I feel like we say that like all the time, but you know, it's a doozy. This one is legit M. Night Shyamalan twist. Oh my God. I know. Mm -hmm. Like you guys, unless you already know the story, but if you don't know the story, you're going to be like, oh my God. God, I watched the 2020 on it and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then the thing happened and I'm like, what? And I was so mad. I know. I watched the 2020 as well. Elizabeth Vargas, man, she's got, she's got a nice bod. She does. And she's got a nice interrogation or interview voice. Yeah. Yeah, she does. I like it. Yeah. Anyway, shall we? We shall. We shall. Let's shall. And this is our um, 4th of July episode. So, hey girl, happy 4th. Let freedom (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's Independence Day. It show is. Except for that song, it's very sad. Oh, it's so sad. Well, the video is really sad too. But yeah, it's about liberating yourself from a toxic, abusive relationship, which is always a good thing. Yes, definitely. And you don't have to wait till Independence Day to do that. Uh Uh-uh. No. Any day could be your Independence Day. Exactly. Yeah. We are advocates of exiting that relationship safely. Yes. Yes. The exodus. Okay. So let's go ahead. Okay. So trigger warning really quickly. There's going to be discussion about child murder, rape, Kind of child neglect, you'll see when we get there. But if any of those are things that you don't want to listen to, then you can go ahead and skip this one. We totally get it. We'll have a new case next week. This is just a one part. Yes, and this case was requested by Bethany Cantrell and Torin Perkins. So thanks, guys, for requesting it. And it was written up by the one and only Sloan. Hey, girl, thanks. So, yeah, thanks a mil. All right. On Mother's Day, 1985, Bob and Jeanette Seafeld noticed that their neighbors, the Eastburns, had newspapers piling up on their front porch. And while the Fayetteville Observer is a pretty lackluster newspaper, it was unlike the Eastburns at least to not bring the paper in. So I get, you know, like once they brought it in, they probably threw it away. They were like, well, this sucks. But they used it to line a birdcage or something. Yeah, you know, there's many uses for a newspaper. But it was super weird that they're just piling up, you know, Mm because they didn't think that they were out of town. I mean, the car, the family station wagon had not moved in days. So it's not like, okay, well, they're on a trip. The Seafelds had last seen Catherine Jean Eastburn, who went by Katie, and her daughter since Thursday night. 
Katie had brought two of her three daughters. One was already asleep, so she was left in the house over to borrow some milk for the girls' breakfast in the morning. They came over around 7.45 p.m. and were headed back next door to their house by 8. You know, just a quick like, hey, can I get some milk for tomorrow morning? She probably just, you know, ran out and whatever. Well, she definitely ran out or else she wouldn't have borrowed it, but um, probably couldn't run to the store with the one child already asleep. So Mm -hmm. good neighbors borrowing some milk. The Seafelds went over to their neighbor's house and rang the doorbell. And there was no response, but they could hear the baby crying. Mm -hmm. The Seafelds had lived next to the Eastburns for a while, and they would even later refer to Katie Eastburn as, quote, the most devoted mom they'd ever seen. She was not a woman to ignore a screaming child or leave the baby home alone. Plus, again, the family station wagon was still in the driveway. So when the Seafelds heard the baby but got no answers to the door, they decided to call the police. They know something is very, very wrong at this point. The police come to the house at 367 Summerhill Road, and they did the same as the Seafelds. They ring the doorbell, Mm -hmm. they knock, and at first they don't hear anything. They started walking around the house, and that's when through the window, they saw the baby standing in her crib. An officer opened the unlatched window to that room, and he climbed in. He grabbed the 21-month-old baby girl, Jana, who was screaming in her crib, and handed her to Bob Seafeld, who took her next door to his wife. Jeanette changed Jana's diaper, which she had been in for the better part of three days by this point, and grabbed an old t-shirt to put on the little girl. Jeanette then took Jana to the kitchen and got her a glass of milk. Jeanette said that Jana Mm. was basically inhaling this milk, but she kept throwing up. Jeanette also noticed that her teeth were black and assumed that it was from dehydration and malnutrition. An ambulance was called for her and she was taken off to the hospital where doctors would determine that baby Jana was within two hours of dying. Unfortunately, despite being in this near-death condition, Jana was considered the lucky one. Oh my gosh. After the officer handed Jana over to the Seafelds, they opened her bedroom door that led to the hallway and they immediately smelled the stench of death. First, they came across three-year-old Erin Eastburn, who was on the floor of her parents' bedroom. She'd been stabbed multiple times in the chest, and her throat had been cut so deeply that she was almost decapitated. I just cannot even fathom, how can you do that to anybody but a Mm three-year-old child? Yeah, that's a baby. Yeah. Next in the same room was Katie Eastburn. She was naked and had been stabbed many times in the chest, and her throat was also slit. Katie's jeans and underwear would be found in the living room, and her underwear had been cut off. Finally, police found five-year-old Kara Eastburn in her bed under a Star Wars blanket. This so broke my heart. She had died the same way as her mother and little sister, stabbed and her throat slit, but they said that she had most likely been hiding from the killer. So she went and climbed in her bed and like got under the blanket to hide from this person. So heartbreaking. Police were horrified and simultaneously stumped. The Eastburns were a good military family and everyone described Katie in glowing terms. So who would want to murder this beautiful family? Mm-hmm. Once the bodies were discovered, there was another issue of having to tell Katie's husband of 11 years, Captain Gary Eastburn. After they married, he enlisted in the Air Force. 
By 1985, Gary was a captain in the Air Force, supervising air traffic control at Pope Air Force Base next to Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he had just landed a job as an air liaison officer at an Air Force Base near London, England. I love London, England. I love London, England. Exactly. (laughs) The Eastburn family was preparing to move or PCS, which is permanent change of station. But before the new job, Gary had to go to Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, which was 500 miles away, for 10 weeks for an officer training course. Gary had originally considered having his family come with him to Alabama, but Kara was in kindergarten and they didn't want to pull her from school. He also didn't want to uproot them for this 10 weeks and then again when they moved. Gary had been there for nine weeks and had been keeping up with his family via handwritten letters and landline telephone calls from the barracks payphone. Of course, this is during a time when cell phones, email, that kind of stuff are completely non-existent yet. So yeah. Every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. like clockwork, Katie called the phone and they talked. Katie never, ever missed a call. But that Saturday, May 11th, Katie did miss the call. Gary was concerned. Katie was described by him and others as the love of his life, and he knew she wouldn't miss the call on purpose. Plus, she had made all nine previous calls, and this was the first Saturday that she didn't call. Why would she miss the last one before he came home? At 8.15 a.m., Gary decided that he would call her, collect, but she didn't answer. He had to go to work, but as soon as he could, he called again. At 11 a.m., he still got no answer. He tried once more just after noon, but no answer. By this point, Gary is spiraling into panic, so he called a friend and had them go by the house. The friend went to the house, but there was no answer. Then Gary knew he had to call the police. He asked the Fayetteville police to do a welfare check, but when they got there and also got no answer and there were no lights on or anything, they left a note for Katie to call her husband when they moved on. I would not consider that a welfare check. (laughs) No. Nobody's welfare has been checked. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, then why do you call it that then? Well, and I'm not trying, I understand that you can't get all up in everybody's business, break into someone's house, whatever. But they basically did in person what Gary and the neighbor or friend had done. Like, what is the point of view? Yeah. I think at that point, let's call it a welfare guess. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess they're fine. Yeah. I mean, they didn't answer. So I guess there's no reason why, no sinister reason why they wouldn't have come to the door. Yeah. And their car is in the driveway. Mm Mm-hmm. So... And I would guess maybe Jana would have been crying then as well. I would think. Gary, though, he knew that everything was wrong. This was not going to end well. So when the police detective called Gary that Sunday, he basically answered the phone with how many of them are dead. Mm. Can you imagine? And I can't imagine the guilt that he probably harbored because he had talked about having them come with him. Yeah, and, you know, just so sad. Right, yeah. Had they done that, yeah, you do that whole like... What if kind shoulda, of... Shoulda, coulda, woulda, yeah. yeah. Just, that's so sad. Police were thrown at that reaction. They told him that they couldn't give him any information over the phone, but there had been a death in the family. He needed to come home right away. Gary caught a plane that night and spent the two-hour flight fretting about what happened to his family. Do you think that that reaction like made them kind of suspicious of him? Well, no, because... He has an ironclad alibi. Well, yeah, but he could have hired somebody, right? I mean, I guess he could have, but I don't know. I mean, Torella, I'm just 
thinking in terms of you here. Oh. Mm-hmm. If I haven't answered my cell phone, if you message me all morning and I haven't messaged you back, what do you assume? Oh, you're dead. So, okay. You that know what I mean? That is a doornail. Yep. Yeah. So if somebody was like, hey, um, we need to talk to you about your sister, you'd be like, how dead is she? Because yeah. you know that some, yeah. Still pretty fucking dead, Dale. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it just seems like, well, how do you know? But she hasn't answered in days. All and nobody yeah. who went to check on her had gotten a response from her. I'm just saying like certain people in the world <clears throat> are worst case scenarioers and just assume that everyone is already dead. Okay. I'm not going to take that as an attack. Well, you should because it was 100% an attack, but you know what? That's your journey. Yeah. So once Gary was back in Fayetteville, Gary was told about the murders of his two daughters and his wife, which was the love of his life. The one bright spot was that Jana survived. Gary said that Jana saved him. She was his reason for living. He called her his first, second, third, fourth, and fifth priorities. I did not love Elizabeth Vargas in this moment when she... Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because he was like, you know, Jana saved me. And she's like, why? And he's like, well, you know, oh, because she said, she said, well, what would you have done if she had died too? It's like, yeah, you don't need to ask that. Like, obviously he would have been 100% devastated. Like, well, and the way that he was talking or the way that he alluded to the feelings that he had, he would have had, because he was like, she gave me a reason to keep going. She gave me a reason to to live. Yeah. And she was like, well, what would you have done if she, if she had died, if she'd been murdered? And it's like, what do you want from him, Elizabeth, for him to tell you that he would have died by suicide? Right. Yeah. It just, I don't know. I hate, I feel like, Questions like that are just, you're just trying to get a sound bite. You're just trying to get, you're just trying to rile up like this deep emotion. And it's just for the show. It's not, it's exploiting. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I didn't love that. I didn't super love that either. But you know what? Everybody, she's human. We're not perfect. Well, that's part of that job. I mean, I couldn't do that job at all. Like, it's not the same, obviously, but it reminds me of that Pablo Francisco sketch where he's like, how bad you have to be to be like a Jerry Springer. And he's like, here's a knife. Do something with the knife. Like, it's like you're trying so hard to just get an extreme reaction out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Or like the SNL skits of Dateline where, oh God, what's his name? Ed? I forget his name. No. Um, it's the guy that was in that movie with Amy Schumer, Trainwreck or whatever. I forget his name. I haven't seen Trainwreck. He played the doctor. Oh. Um, But anyway, he plays Keith Morrison and, you know, people will be like, it was the worst day of my life. And they're like, he's like, why? And they're like, because, you know, because my husband was dead or had been murdered. And he's like, yeah, he was just like, you know, excited about all of these, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just like, Playing it up. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's get into the investigation. To uh, the investigation. Okay. You're coming for me today. I don't even know why. Sometimes I just do that shit. Like I'll like I made fun of a bird the other day. It made like the weirdest. Yeah, it like was like cawing or something. And I was like, me. And I was like, oh my God. Really? <laughs> that bird was like, what a 
bitch. Yeah, I'm just sitting here enjoying my day. And she's just <laughs> me, 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 me. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, oh my God, I'm such a shithead. <laughs> well, you said it, you know. Hey, hey, hey. hey. Detectives Jack Watts and, <gasps> and Robert Biddle were the leads on the case and they began their investigation at the house. I'm not giving you any more I time. I know, I know. <laughs> Despite the horrific injuries to all three Eastburns, there was oddly very little blood. The lab was called in to spray luminol and found that whoever had murdered the two little girls and their mother and left Jana to die had spent a significant amount of time cleaning up. The murderer also stole Katie's wallet. The autopsies would show defensive wounds on all three victims. Katie's autopsy showed that she had been tied by her wrists and she'd been raped. Swabs were taken and lots of other DNA evidence that wasn't really useful in 1985 was collected and stored. Uh, still, every time, I'm like the forethought that they had. I know, like, thank God you saved that and mm -hmm. just like knew that it could be useful one day. We have no idea what we're going to use this for, but maybe one day we will. Yes. With the murderer still on the loose and the neighborhood in fear, detectives were pretty desperate for a lead. So desperate, in fact, that they turned to the only survivor, 21-month-old Jana Eastburn. What in the fuck? Mm-hmm. And keep going. Mm-hmm. They had a child psychologist show her pictures of her mother, and she yeah. actually asked Jana who that was, and Jana said mommy and gave the picture a kiss. I would have fucking broken down and not been able to finish my day. I just... I know. The child psychologist, I mean, she seems super sweet, but she's like, oh, good job. Yeah, that is your mommy. And yeah. she's like, oh, that's sweet. That's like, so you know. Sweet. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, she's not even two, so she doesn't understand. Well, who does this child psychologist think Jana is? Stewie from Family Guy? Like, um, mm -hmm. she's not reading leather-bound books and has a office of rich mahogany. Like, <laughs> she's not even two. Yeah, she's not giving presentations and making PowerPoints and yeah, all the things. Yeah, so th they wanted to talk to her and find out if she had maybe seen or heard anything that she could communicate to them and break the case open. What in the world do you think she's going to tell you? I mean, we covered Purvis Payne and the little boy in that was four and he couldn't give any information. No. Like, it's a big ask for a toddler. Exactly. And, you know, they're like, um, has anything scary happened in your house? And she was like, no. And she's like, you know, did you hear anything the, that night? I don't even know what they said, like how they worded which night they're even talking about. But, right, you know, did but you they, hear anything? They did get her. I mean, she did say two things that were semi-pertinent. Yeah, she said, hide from the burglar so he doesn't get us and he's going to get me. And, but I also don't know, did she plant the, the word burglar? Like, where did that come up? Because, yeah, a 21 month old, I don't think really knows that word. I don't think so either, but I, do think about sometimes how your son knows like know. avocado and luminous and rotate. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hand sanitizer, which is just a product of him being in a pandemic, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Ben told me one time, I mean, obviously he's five now, but I swear he said he wanted to see an alligator or something. And I was like, you want to see an alligator? And he was like, yeah, see you later, alligator. And I was like, because we were going to the pool or something. And I was like, oh, you know, there's no alligators in our pool. And he was like, mom, it's just a figure of speech. I was like, how do you know that? Oh my God. And he was like three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. So like there are definitely kids with big vocabularies. Yeah, big vocabularies and stuff like that. And my kids are kind of on that level. But still, like, I think Ben would know the word burglar now. But when he was less than two, I don't know. I mean, because even the little shows that they watch shouldn't have a burglar in it, I don't think. You know, what about the hamburglar? Yeah, but I don't, that's not like, I haven't seen him anywhere, you know? Well, this is the 80s, Torella. Hamburglar was everywhere. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only, I literally thought about that. That's like the only way that I feel like she can know that word. Yeah. So maybe. Only days after the discovery of the bodies, a man came forward with a story about his 3.30 a.m. walk on the morning of Friday, May 10th. 20-year-old Patrick Cohn reported that he was walking through the neighborhood on his way to his dad's house. While walking past the Eastburns, Cone saw a tall white man coming from the Eastburn yard. He said the man was wearing almost all black, black toboggan hat, black members-only jacket over a white t-shirt, black jeans, and shoes with a bag over his shoulder. Cone said that he was within three feet of this man, and the man told Cone, I'm getting an early start today, or leaving a little early this morning, and walked on by past Cone to get into his white Chevy Chevette. Cone had gotten such a good look at the man that he was able to work with the sketch artist and give a very detailed description. A composite was created, but before it was released to the public, detectives found out more information that could help lead them to a suspect. Katie had written to Gary that she had met with a nice man to sell their family dog. And nice was in quotes, I guess a word that she said. Mm -hmm. Since they were PCSing to England and their English setter, Dixie, would have to be quarantined, they decided to rehome her, even though. They loved her very, very much. Katie had been or had placed an ad in the 1985 Fayetteville version of Facebook Marketplace, Beeline Grab Bag. It's like a classifieds ad, looking for a good home for their sweet Dixie. So the Tuesday, May 7th, before the, their bodies were found, a man had answered their ad. Now the police were looking for this man. They didn't have to look super far. They ended up finding him fairly quickly. On the day that the sketch was released and the police called for information about the man that adopted Dixie to come speak with them, they didn't know if the composite and the dog adopter were one man or two different men. 27-year-old Sergeant Timothy Hennis and his wife Angela were home eating lunch. So they saw the composite and heard the call for information about the dog adoption and they were like, oh, that's us. We adopted that dog. Yeah. So as soon as they saw this, they gathered up their things and their newborn daughter and headed to the police station to provide any information they could. When he entered the station and Detective Biddle saw him, he was floored by how closely Hennis resembled the composite sketch. I got to say this too. So we're in North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. The accents that come from North Carolina, because Detective Biddle He's got that Southern draw and you don't really say your R's uh, all the way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love it. I know. He was, yeah, he was very, it's like old school Southern 
Mm-hmm. accent yeah almost foghorn leghorn but softer <laughs> yeah 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 definitely softened a little mm-hmm. uh so tim hennis speaks with officers that day he waived his miranda rights he was very cooperative he told them how he had acquired the dog and you know because of that he had met katie eastburn he told authorities that his wife had seen the ad for the dog in the paper and he called about it Police would later discover a message on the answering machine from a woman named Angela about adopting the dog, and that's his wife's name. He told Katie Eastburn that he would come by Tuesday, May 7th, and he did. Hennis drove his white Chevy Chevette to -hmm. the Eastburn house to meet Dixie and talk to the, quote, dog lady, which is Katie. He only ever referred to her as dog lady. That's never her name and rude. Yeah. And also, excuse me, white Chevy Chevette. Uh, exactly. She invited him in the house and he said he stayed for a little bit to talk to Katie, aka dog lady, and kind of eased her mind about handing over the dog. Hennis said that she explained that they were moving overseas, that her husband was away at officer training now. Hennis said that he asked if he could use their bathroom, which she allowed. And after that, he leashed up the dog and started to leave. He told detectives that on his way out, Katie told him that she'd call him later this week around Thursday to like just see how Dixie was doing. Hennis said he went home with the new dog. And at some point, he told his wife that he thought it would be a good idea if he dropped her off at her parents' house for the weekend since he had to work double shifts. I wonder if that's something that he normally did if he worked double shifts. Yeah. Or if it was like that one time that I moved to a different state for my boyfriend. And then he said that he had to work double shifts, but really he was hanging out with his friends and drinking a bunch of beers. Oh, and also it was my birthday. Mm-hmm. That was super cool of him. But you think it was something like that where he was just making it up? I guess, but he didn't even like arrange a babysitter for you, which was kind of rude. <gasps> But like, yeah, I don't know. Cause it's like, okay, she's at home when you work anyway. Like I get that they have a newborn. Maybe it would be, you know, maybe it is easier for her to have help, but. Well, it's also, (laughs) I'm I'm likening this whole situation to a lot of things personally. Like that one time that I got that little schnauzy dog and then I was like, oh, by the way, I'm going out of town. Like why get the dog? If you're going to be completely MIA all weekend, why not wait a little bit? Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, where's the dog going to go? Like, uh, yeah, is the dog going to stay at home and he's going to work double shifts and support dogs in a brand new place? Nobody's there. Yeah. That sucks. I don't know. What a dick. Hennis then tells detectives that on Thursday, he took his wife to her parents' house about 90 miles from Fayetteville, Fayetteville and then headed back home. That's such a long drive. Like, that's such a big fucking production and to do to be like, oh, I just have to work a double shift. Like, I'm working a double that day. Yeah. So she needs to go on a trip. I don't know. 90 miles away. Yeah. It's not like her parents live 20 minutes down the road and it's like, do you want to just stay with your parents since I won't be there or whatever? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just wonder, is that something they normally did or is this totally out of character? Yeah. He said that when he got home, he went to bed right away. He said that the dog lady called him Thursday as well, and they had a quick conversation about the dog, and that was it. That weekend, he said he worked and cleaned the house, and then Monday, he picked up his wife and baby. It's just so weird. It's like, it is weird. You just want a weekend without us, I guess. Like, well, 
We figure out why. Well, exactly. He willingly provided all the samples of whatever bodily fluids and hair that they wanted. They wanted to definitely get some, you know, some samples from him. And he was like, yes, absolutely. He was very, very cooperative. While he was at the station, detectives showed a photo lineup, including Hennis, to Patrick Cohn, who was already at the station as well. And he immediately picked out Tim Hennis, no hesitation. Then the cops drove him around the parking lot and asked him if he saw the car that he had seen that night. And he identified Hennis's car. They did let Tim Hennis go home for the time being. So they needed to get some search warrants. And around 1 a.m., police executed both an arrest warrant and a search warrant on the Hennis house. Officers basically destroyed the house looking for evidence, but found nothing. However, this lack of evidence would soon seemingly be explained. So now that he is arrested, Hennis's mugshot was plastered in the newspaper. And as people do, they came forward with stories about Hennis. One was Hennis's ex-girlfriend, Nancy, who claimed that on Thursday, May 9th, Tim Hennis came to her house while her husband was out of town. She said that they talked for a while before Hennis tried to make a move. She rejected him and he eventually left. Nancy claimed that Hennis did have a members-only jacket, but she was unsure if he was wearing it that night. What? A little turd. I know. He's like, has a newborn child, sends mm-hmm. his wife away, and he's like, I mean, he sends her away so that he can cheat on her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he wants to go. And, like, what made you think that your ex, who is now married, is going to want your little ass? I know. It's like, it, just because she says, yeah, okay, we can hang out, like, that's just an automatic, like, great, we're going to have sex. Like, well, no, I don't think so. I think that happens all the time. Well, yeah, it does. Yeah. Pisses me off. The next person to come forward was the owner of a dry cleaners who said that Hennis brought in a members only jacket on Friday, May 10th, but there was nothing suspicious on it like blood or anything. And then some of Hennis's neighbors came forward saying that they had been burning something or that he had been burning something in an oil drum. They said that he never did that because their trash was picked up weekly, but and he never burned yard waste either. They claimed that he had been pouring flammable liquid on the fire and the flames were five to six feet high. According to the neighbors, he had burned things in the barrel for most of the day. Wow, that's not noticeable, Tim. (laughs) Right? Like, exactly. Giant flames. He never burns anything and he's in a neighborhood with people around him. Like, (laughs) nothing to see here. It was noted that when police investigated the barrel, there were still remnants of different kinds of fabric like jersey, t-shirts, terry cloth like towels, and weaved fabric like bed sheets. And it was odd because the Eastburn's house was missing sheets and towels. Hmm. It was also discovered that Timothy Hennis was in some financial hot water. Earlier that week in May 1985, the landlord had been by to present Hennis with an eviction notice. On May 9th, Hennis wrote the landlord a check for $300 for the rent. Ah, the 80s. Mm -hmm. And asked him not to deposit it for a few days. Military personnel get paid on the 1st and the 15th, so it's completely possible that he could have been saying to wait until he got paid in six days. But... It was also discovered that Katie Eastburn's ATM card had been used on that Friday the 10th at 10 p.m. and Saturday, May 11th at 11 a.m. Wow. He's very like, what day is it? That's the time I'm going. Yeah, exactly. It's like on the 10th, I may only use the ATM at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m., I guess. And on the 11th, I have to go at 11. Yes, exactly. 
And each time the amount that he had withdrawn was $150. So how much does that equal up to? Uh-oh, three hundos. I know, three doll hairs. 300 doll hairs, not three. Yeah. You can't just no. withdraw $3. You can try. That's the fee that they will charge you. I think you can charge, you can withdraw $3 if you go on the third and you go at three. Oh, that's very true. Mm -hmm. And I think you can only do that in Europe. Oh, for sure. (laughs) It would have been very difficult for Katie to have used her card since it was determined that she and her daughters were dead on Thursday. So remember, the newspapers for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were still outside while the Thursday newspaper was inside and the Seafelds had seen Katie and all and the two girls on Thursday night. So detectives got an idea to check the ATM's logs to find out who used the machine right after Katie's card was used. Records showed that a lady named Lucille Cook used the machine less than four minutes after Katie's card was used. Police asked her if she saw the man or the person in front of her and she confirmed that she did. She said that she had seen a man and saw him walk to his white car. She picked Hennis out of a photo lineup. Another strange occurrence before the murders was that Katie had been getting crank calls. Not, is your refrigerator running? Will you better go catch it type calls. (laughs) These were described as harassing. Katie had been getting these calls from an unknown man ever since Gary left. And the Tuesday before the murders was another instance. Their babysitter, Julie, was there that day. And she told detectives that Katie prepped her on how to deal with these calls. Oddly enough, Katie's ATM card had not been used after Hennis's arrest on May 15th. And since they were murdered and left in the house for three days, and now the house is a crime scene, it is not known when slash if the crank calls had stopped. Poor Katie is having to deal with so much shit while her husband's gone. Like that has to be terrifying. Three kids, all of the bedtimes, all of the bathing, all of the everything for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you're getting prank calls. Prank calls. She's gonna ha- She's the one that has to figure out what to do with the dog. Mm-hmm. Just a lot. Sucks. Okay, so let's get to the first trial, which means there ain't just one. Yeah, and you probably will lose track of how many there are. <laughs> yeah. Just over a year later, on May 27th, 1986, Timothy Hennis's trial began. People were getting in literal fistfights so they could get into the courtroom. The prosecution was very heavy-handed in the trial in that they attempted to present 99 photos of the crime scene and autopsies, and the way they presented them was a little much. They were mostly pictures of the heads and chests of Aaron, Kara, and Katie Eastburn so that their wounds were the main focus and their faces were front and center. In the end, only 35 of the photos were allowed into the actual trial, but the prosecution used every single one multiple times in multiple ways. They had a gigantic screen erected in the courtroom directly over where Hennis would be seated. Thus, when they presented the slides of the autopsies and the injuries, they would be huge in as much color as the 80s could provide provide and right above Tim Hennis. But then they passed around eight by 10 glossy color prints of the same graphic photos to the jury one by one for 90 minutes. Goodness. That's, I mean, I get that you want to make an impact, right? Yeah, make an impact, impress upon the jury how brutal this crime was. Um, but at the same time, it's like you want to still be respectful of the victim's loved ones too like 
That's a lot for them to have to go through. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for 90 minutes, that, that's in addition to the stuff on the projector and everything. It's like just 90 minutes of passing around actual physical photos. Like, I don't know. That's just... That's a bit much. It's a bit much. The prosecution also requested that the court take a field trip to the East Burns home so that when Patrick Cohn testified, they could see how far he was from the man that he saw and illustrate that Cohn could see the man clearly. The defense was furious and objected vehemently, but the judge allowed it. So in the light of day, unlike the dark early morning hours when he originally saw the man, the courtroom convened outside the Eastburn home. On July 4th, 1986, this trial ended when the jury convicted Timothy Bailey Hennis of the first degree premeditated murders of Aaron, Kara, and Katie Eastburn and the rape of Katie Eastburn. Only four days later, it was determined that his sentence for these crimes would be three death sentences for the murders and a life sentence for the rape. Wow. And it would be crazy if we just stopped it right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to do that though. Nope can't. Way more than that. Yep. So let's talk about the second trial. Hennis's lawyers immediately jumped to file appeals based on the numerous errors they claimed occurred during the first trial. They claimed 59 errors on the appeal and a huge focus of the errors was the macabre and gratuitous slash excessive use of the autopsy and crime scene photographs. The issue was that while the prosecution can present photographs of crime scenes and autopsies, they should, quote, illustrate testimony and there are criteria that should be considered in using them that helps keep the photographs from being considered probative. Is it probative? Oh, probative. Okay. So here's the criteria. One, what's depicted in this case, straight horror nightmare fuel. So the level of detail and scale, they were fucking gigantic and detailed as a mother. Color versus black and white. These were in living color. Slide projected on a screen versus print. They had both. Where and how the pro- the pictures are projected and presented. They were presented everywhere at all times and as long as possible. The scope and clarity of the testimony it accompanies. And they were basically none most of the time. The defense was arguing that the photographs in this case were used solely to stir emotions in the jurors from what they depicted to how they were presented. So that's why they convicted him and sentenced him to death. The Supreme Court reversed the conviction and granted Hennis a new trial. I mean, this, like, this is why you just need to fucking do your job as a prosecutor and do it right. I mean, and mm-hmm. do it well. Like, if you if you follow the rules, so many great things happen. You get convictions when you should because you're presenting the evidence that shows a person's guilt. And you're not, you know, getting so excessive with it that you're now being disrespectful to the victim's families and things like that. You're doing what needs to be done and you're doing it the way it's supposed to be done. So guilty people go to jail. And then on the other hand, if you're doing your job right, then guess what? People who are innocent don't get convicted. Like, right. But we can't do that, can we? Like, no, no, we can't do it. They had to go so excessive on these photos that it gives this man a new trial And you guys are going to be pissed at the end of this, but like Mm -hmm. it accompanied no testimony. It's not, it's not doing anything to, it's supposed to supplement, you know, the testimony or the, the story, the facts, but they were literally just like 
hey, look at this one. Hey, look how bad this is. Hey, look how bad this is. Like, right. That's prejudicial. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what I say? Following the rules, it just makes good sense. Oh, well, that's a great, great words to live by. I thought so. What's that from? I just made it up. Oh, wow. You're so smart. (laughs) I know. So in this new trial, the defense was coming in guns blazing. They'd found new witnesses to discredit the prosecution's witnesses. And Patrick Cohn basically discredited himself, possibly with the help of the prosecution a little bit. Patrick Cohn had gotten himself into a fair amount of trouble. He was in some hot water since the first trial and had gotten arrested. While he was in custody, the man had the audacity Mm. to say to the police, do you know who I am? I am a key witness for the prosecution. (laughs) The officers were like, okay, cool. You can't do bad shit though. And you're still arrested. So it turns out he kind of can because his charges were dismissed and he was released. The defense claimed that the prosecution was behind this drop of charges, which duh, it sounds exactly like that's what happened. Yeah, and just you can't do, I mean, what is it you always say? Following the rules just makes good sense. Just makes good sense. You know? Yep. Yeah, it does. So Cone was also being a loud mouth and telling people that he wasn't really sure what he'd seen. At the time, he told his dad and coworkers what he'd seen and his story stayed the same. But after the conviction, he was saying he wasn't sure. Friends would come forward to the defense to say that he was just a drunk and that he was delusional. During the first trial, Tim Hennis didn't take the stand, but in this one, he did, and he denied any involvement in the murders of the Eastburns. He didn't crack under cross-examination and actually did a good job on the stand. This actually surprised his own lawyers who thought he was just going to lose his cool. The defense's new Next new person to take the stand was a man named John who had lived down the street from the Eastburns. John reportedly looked almost identical to Tim Hennis. The defense had found him right after the conviction and found that he had worked nights at Winn-Dixie. John walked to and from his job and carried a change of clothes in his backpack. It was also mentioned that John tended to have difficulty with sleeping after he got off work and he'd frequently take longer walks in order to try and get tired or unwind. Then he was fired from Winn-Dixie for stealing, so those walks were pretty much over. Also, though, the defense, when they they said that they didn't want to put Tim on the stand in the first trial, and the defense attorney even said, like, because she's like, why? And he's like, well, I thought he'd, like, you know, come across the... Well, he seemed to have a very bad temper. Yes, yeah, that's what I, like, he's like, I thought he would come across and, you know, knock somebody out or something like that. And I'm like, well... That seems like a pretty big problem if you think he can't even keep his cool with a judge sitting right next to him. Yeah. You know, like if his temper is that bad, that's not going to look good. No, not at all. He definitely did not need to be on the stand if that's the kind of attitude or stance he was going to take. Yeah. I will admit at this point, I was like, wow, I mean, this is like... I don't know if I think he did it. But when I heard that he, they were worried that he was going to come across the table or whatever, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't love that fact. Like, right. He seems aggressive. Yeah, exactly. Like that just kind of goes to, I mean, it's circumstantial. It's a not character. I don't know. Maybe it is a character trait. Like it's just, uh, there, there are plenty of people who are aggressive who don't commit murders, but it seems like he's aggressive in a violent way if they're worried mm-hmm. that an, a physical altercation is going to happen in the middle of fucking court. Right. For a murder trial. Like, 
you got to keep your cool, dude. <laughs> right. I mean, my God in heaven. So then the defense called the newspaper carrier for the East Burns neighborhood. The delivery person remembered that the early morning hours of May 10th were foggy and it was still pretty dark out. So foggy and dark that she didn't see an almost rear-ended a parked van in near the East Burns, but was able to swerve to avoid it. Yet she claimed she was able to see a man in the East Burns front yard and was able to describe him as 5'7 and medium built. He's a white man with long stringy hair. The newspaper delivery person was adamant that the man that she saw was not Tim Hennis. And Tim was what, like six? Something. He was like six three, six four. Yeah, he, he was, was very tall. Very tall. And short well, hair. He's in the military. Oh, yes. And a little mustache. Mm-hmm. But every every picture that I saw of him or every video that I saw of him, like him walking next to people, I was like, hot damn, he's tall. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking he would probably have been more like six five, six six or something, you know? Because mm-hmm. he was like a whole head taller than everybody else. Yeah, he was super tall. Mm-hmm. Probably, I guess still is. The defense also introduced the idea of another possible suspect, Mr. X. While in prison, Hennis received a letter that said, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. Thanks, Mr. X. (laughs) Wow. Okay. On April 19th, 1989, when Torella had just finished celebrating her third birthday. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Try Amber's. And Bredders. <laughs> I was talking about that the other day when you were outside. There's this home video of us, and Torella's just upset, just beside herself because Miss KB's walking by or walking away, and she's like squalling. <laughs> and one of our cousins is like, What? He's coming right back. And she's like, I want to hold him. Because <laughs> you did. Yeah, and my little um, crop top, two yeah, piece floral. Crop top, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. So on April 19th, 1989, Timothy Hennis was acquitted of all charges. He was acquitted. He was acquitted. And again, you might think, oh, okay, this is where this stops. Mm. You're wrong. Right. Because normally, right, we've got double jeopardy. He can't be tried again. So done deal. Mm -hmm. Great movie too. Great movie. Love it. Tim Hennis was free to go, and he was able to hold his daughter for the first time in years. His lawyer suggested that he get out of the army, but he chose to stay. He was credited for the time that he'd spent in prison and got back pay. So he was able to just go back to where he was in his career with the army as well. Hennis continued to proclaim his innocence and said that the police just wanted to close the case and put someone away without actually investigating. And he like, he did interviews. He was on the news. He like he was on a lot of he did like a lot of media appearances just being like, you know, they just wanted to pin it on somebody. They were desperate to solve it. They just wanted somebody to pay for it basically and there I was pretty much. Mm-hmm. And he and his lawyers felt that the prosecution hadn't considered anyone else ever. And one of the detectives was like Every lead that we followed, every like path that any of the evidence went down, right there is Tim Hennis. Right mm-hmm. there. Right there. Like, yes. you, you know, everywhere you turn, it's like, boom, there's Tim. Boom. At least a Tim. Boom. It's that Tim guy again. Boom. Where's Tim? Oh, he's right there. Yeah. Exactly. Since the murders of his wife and daughters, Gary Eastburn had tried to move forward. He took the job in England and he and Jana tried to make a new kind of life. 
Gary met an English nurse and they married in 1991 when Jana was eight. Jana said, she's really the only mom I've ever known and I wouldn't want her to feel any other way about that. So Jana was actually in the 2020 episode and at this point she's an adult. And she said that she can't really remember anything about that time and she often feels guilty about it, you know, that she couldn't help solve the case or anything like that, which is, I mean, that's heartbreaking because of course she can't. She was 21 months old. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing you can do. It's just so sad. And when she learned that Tim Hennis was a free man again, she switched from guilt to fear. She said that she lived in fear that he was going to come after her and or that like she'd run into him somewhere in public, which is like, that's so the anxiety. Yes, I feel so bad for her. She also said that she struggles with the question of why he left her alive. Detectives Biddle and Watts can only assume, but they think that he left her because she most likely could never have identified him, but that Kara and Aaron might have. And that always drives me crazy. Like, there's obviously a lot that it's awful about any murder, specifically a child murder, but like, When people are like, well, you know, I didn't want to leave this little kid, three years old, five years old, whatever, alive because I was afraid they might identify me, especially if it's a a stranger. I'm like, they couldn't. Like, Mm -mm. they're not going to be able to identify you. You don't have to take their life. Like, no. But I mean, if we're going that route, you don't have to do any of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and I think too, it's a little bit of a cop out. Like, it is. Yeah. Oh, well. I had to. They're trying to justify it any way they can because they're a piece right. of shit. Yeah. Gary Eastburn left the Air Force in 1993, but Tim Hennis continued to rise through the ranks. During his time in the Air Force, Hennis was deployed to Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm and later to Somalia. He got promotions and commendations. And in 2004, Tim Hennis re- retired as a master sergeant. And that's the highest ranking enlisted soldiers in the military can get. So. Wow. I mean, he pretty much he did the damn thing. Yeah. He lived he's he's out living a really, really good life with his family. He's very successful. You know, it didn't stop him from doing anything he wanted to do. Right. In two thousand five, Hennis and his family were making a life in Washington State after his retirement from the military. Very coincidentally, the Eastburns had also made their home in Washington State just 30 minutes from where Hennis and his family would settle. How is that, like, how? I don't even know. Because they're... That's too big of a coincidence. I know. Like, obviously, they don't talk. That's, like, thousands of miles away. How in the world are they that close to each other and they both end up in Washington State? In the same fucking neighborhood. Yeah, pretty much. Essentially. Yeah. It's, that's terrifying. Yes. But back in North Carolina, a cold case detective decided that the big box in storage labeled Eastburn was his next priority. Captain Larry Trotter was in charge of cold cases in Cumberland County at the time and decided to look at the evidence and realize that there was a vaginal swab from Katie Eastburn that in 1985 couldn't be tested. But in 2005, it could. It had been 20 years since the murders and technology had come a long way, so he sent the swab to a lab. The results came back and they said that the spermatozoa, mm-hmm. spermatozoa, spermapalooza, <laughs> basically, 
that was recovered from Katie Eastburn's body after her murder was Hennessy's and had a one and in 1.2 quadrillion or one in 12,000 million chance of being someone other than Hennessy. So basically, it cannot fucking be anybody other than him. But Hennis is like, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> exactly. When this happened, my jaw hit the floor. Yes, absolutely. Like he's free for 20 years, just going around being like, wow, I've been a victim of the system. Like they just had to pin it on somebody. Poor me. Look at me. Mm-hmm. And he, his, his sperm is inside her body and she was raped. And during like any of his interviews or anything, they asked, did you have sex with her? And he said, no, every time. No, I've never had sex with her. Mm-hmm. So I know you're going to guess what I said when Elizabeth Vargas said that the sperm that had been collected from Katie Eastburn had been Hennessy's the whole time. And I was like, the whole time? The whole time? <laughs> the whole time? I was so mad. Yes. Fuck this fucking guy. I know. And his wife? And his daughter? Oh my God. Hennessy's sperm was found in Katie Eastburn. So now the prosecution had genetic evidence leaking Hennis to the rape and murder of Katie and her daughters. However, he had been acquitted in the state of North Carolina. So double jeopardy was attached. He couldn't be tried again for their murders, except that he could. Hmm. Okay. So let's explain. When Tim Hennis was acquitted in 1989, he was in the Air Force and they compensated him for his years of service while he was in prison once he was acquitted. Then he continued to serve until 2004. After 23 years of service, he retired, which means that he's now being paid retirement. And according to our friendly neighborhood JAG officer, Mama Margot on military murder, When you retire from the military, your retirement pay is a little different because you're being paid a reduced amount for a reduction in your services, basically. So the army, in effect, owns you. Basically, if you're in the military, they own you. But if you retire from service and you're receiving money from them, they basically just still own you. So they always own you forever Mm -hmm. and ever. Always A-B-O-ing. Always be owning. Yeah. A-B-O-ing. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. I was like, but owning, you missed the N. I got it. Oh, baby, always be owning. Oh, I got it now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. Which worked perfectly to get around the double jeopardy clause, which allows for the state and federal courts to try a person for the same crime. So. Hot damn. I know. So while North Carolina, the state cannot touch him, the army totally could. In Mm -hmm. September of 2006, now 48-year-old Hennis was called back to active duty and ordered to return to Fort Bragg. Once there, he was arrested for the murders. He couldn't be charged with the rape because the statute of limitations had expired. I wish that was not a thing. Like, Yeah, I feel like if you rape someone, then you doesn't... No amount of time is going to change the fact that you did it. Well, yeah, and... I mean, and no amount of time is going to change the fact that you're probably, uh, well, you're a violent offender. Uh huh. And like, are you likely to do it again? Like, I don't know. I just feel like, especially with how many rape kits are sitting, you know, in the backlog, have not been tested, and how many rapes occurred with, you know, detectives taking evidence, but 
them not being able to be tested at the time that they were taken, you know? It's like, Mm -hmm. now we could prosecute those. Right, but because they're sitting there for so long, by the time they maybe do get tested, it's like, well, I don't know if they test them after a certain point, right? Because it's like, well, the statute of limitations has been... Right. Pass, so we'll yeah, just we're not go gonna be able to do anything with it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if there's legislation like anywhere in progress or something like that. But I really feel like rape should be like murder. It, there should be no statute of limitations for it. I agree, especially because that rape shouldn't have a statute of limitations. Well, yeah, just because I feel like an aggressive crime, it should not be forgiven. <laughs> right. You should at least be able to be held accountable. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't just be like, oh, well, it happened too long ago. So whatever. Uh, maybe not forgiven, forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to just get away with it because it happened too long ago. Right. And, you know, even if the rape does not occur with a murder like it did in this situation, survivors of those types of situations, they're serving a life sentence of their own. Mm-hmm. There's so much psychological trauma that goes into or comes along with being raped. Mm-hmm. And just for it to be like, it's not like after however many years that person is not affected by it anymore. So it's just like to have the statute of limitations on it, just, I don't know, doesn't make sense yeah. to me. But no, nope, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so he's arrested for the murders and court-martialed by a panel of 14 military members and peers. His unprecedented third trial started on March 17, 2010. Hennis's lawyers claimed that the new evidence wasn't trustworthy because the lab where the DNA had been tested was in the middle of a scandal. They'd been found to be manipulating the evidence in favor of the prosecution. However, it was noted that the Eastburn evidence was not tainted. Noted by who? The lab? No idea. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's exactly what somebody would say, whether or not they had messed with it, right? Like, no, this case is fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the other cases. Yeah, the lab is like, listen, we'll tell you what all we tampered with, but we for sure, and you'll just have to take our word for it. (laughs) Yeah. We did not tamper with this. Yeah, I mean, multiple people were like, yeah, no, I didn't tamper with that for sure. I tampered with that one, not this one. Right, exactly. I do think that either you should be able to get a second opinion, like they need to match. Like Mm -hmm. we need to have, be able to use like independent labs because- of course, if the state is bringing the case against somebody and it's the state's lab that's doing the testing, that's a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. You can't, you should be doing unbiased, you know, tests. It should just be the science. But a lot of these people have relationships with, you know, people in the prosecution or whatever, the detectives. So they're not just looking at it from a, purely scientific standpoint, they're usually getting other information along the way. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The defense argued no motive and Hennis had no other instances of violence. The defense also decided to take a different and questionable route in this trial. The defense decided that it was their strategy to claim consensual sex. 
They claimed that Hennessy's sperm was inside Katie because they had had consensual sex when he'd come over to get the dog with her kids in the house. So, okay, I'm sorry. Riddle me this though. So first the defense was like, that's not, that's not true. The lab fucked everything up and they lied. Yeah, we don't, we don't believe this is Tim Tampered and tainted. Right. Yes. And then the lab is like, uh-uh, no way, we didn't. You're lying. That's not true. And they were like, okay, we take that back. They had sex um, consensually. Yeah. That's like going the complete opposite direction. <laughs> okay. Right. So if you had tested the DNA and you hadn't tainted it, it would have been Tim Hennessy's anyway. Is that what you're saying? But it's because it was consensual sex, not a rape? Well, exactly. And that's what Elizabeth Vargas kind of comes at that one lawyer for the defense because he was like, well... It could have been, we think that the that the evidence was mixed with other sperm. And so it's been tainted and it shouldn't be used. And she's like, then how did it match to Hennis? Mm-hmm. How? And he's like, well, can you ask the question in another way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they kind of like weaved a story about a woman who's home alone and lonely when her husband is out of town and a man with a wife who just had a baby so they can't have relations. Both wanted to, quote, scratch the itch so they'd slept together. No, no, no. What this is doing is this is victim shaming and victim blaming. Yes. They're basically saying, well, the victim is kind of a whore, so... Yeah, she couldn't get any, she couldn't make whoopee for nine weeks at this point. So she's just hard up as fuck. And this fucking guy, your wife just had a baby and he's like, well, I don't know where I'm going to stick it, but I got to stick it somewhere. Yeah, I simply cannot wait, even though my wife had a human being come out of her body, which is my child. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I can't just like wait a little bit because she's obviously done like a whole hell of a lot of work for our family, but you know, whatever. I need to have sex. Right. Exactly. Fuck this guy. I mean, this just looks horrible. Like Mm -hmm. nobody is going to look at that and be like, okay, well that's, you know, that that's a good look for him. (laughs) Also, the detectives had asked Hennis, like we said, 20 years ago, if he'd had sex with Katie and he said no multiple, multiple times, so many times. So was he lying then or is he lying now? Well, I'm sure he's like, well, okay, I didn't understand the question back then. Yeah, yes, exactly. I didn't, you know what? I was facing, uh, like you were sitting on my right side and I'm actually Mm -hmm. hard of hearing on that side. I thought, you know, whatever. You couldn't have known that. I'm willing to forgive and forget. Let's still let it go. It's fine. exactly. Finally, on April 8th, 2010, after three years, no. They did not deliberate for three years. (laughs) Wow. Damn, y'all, get it together. (laughs) Uh, After three hours. They're still deliberating. They are, yeah. (laughs) Like, I guess we'll just find out when they, you know, we'll come back when they finish. After three hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. The now 52-year-old Timothy Hennis was found guilty of all three murders, and the jury later came back with a sentence of death. His sister, Beth Broomfield, pleaded with the jurors to spare her brother, saying, I don't want to be left alone. I still love him. I believe in him. His sister-in-law said Hennis had been like a father to her. His own kids were both upset by the verdict and the sentence. His 18-year-old son, Andrew, collapsed when he heard. Christina, the infant at the time of the murders, was now 25 and pregnant with her second child. 
And she said that her father was her hero. She also said, I love spending time with my father. I mean, you cannot blame these children. Like, no. And again, I mean, we talk about the ripple effect all the time, but to do something like this to other people, you are literally ruining your family's life too. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, you have nailed yourself in that coffin. Yeah, 100%. And I believe his, I don't know where his wife stands now. But at the time, she did not believe that he was guilty. Like, she still believed mm-hmm. in his innocence. I just can't believe that with such concrete evidence. Like, how did his sperm end up in... Right. You know? Like, yeah. There's no reason for it. No, there's not. Especially when... Because, like, if they had found some of his DNA inside the house, well, that would make sense. That wouldn't be enough of a smoking gun, right? Because he had gone to the house... To get the dog. Yeah. I mean, if he had like a hair that fell or something. Yeah. Like, okay. I expect to find a little bit of DNA. Yeah. Evidence that he's been there. But but to have sperm, like even if he was Russell Williams and he was jacking it all over San Diego, mm-hmm. that still doesn't make sense for how it ended up inside of Mrs. Eastburn. Exactly. Does not make no damn sense. After his conviction and sentencing, Tim Hennis was put in Fort Leavenworth's United States disciplinary barracks for his solitary confinement while he awaits his execution. However, military personnel who are convicted and sentenced to death are statistically unlikely to ever get executed. It kind of sucks, though. I mean, we talked about that. Gosh, did we talk about it for... Oh, which one did we talk about it for? It was one that we recorded recently, and it was with the solitary confinement and how he said that it was cruel and unusual punishment. And I was like, well, too fucking bad. But I do kind of feel like that is, I mean, that's almost worse than death, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's very psychologically damaging. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I feel like if you're going to put people in prison, then just put them in prison. Yeah. I don't see the need for solitary confinement. It's just, it's excessive to me. Yeah. And no military members sentenced to death have been executed since 1961. So, I mean, most of the time their life sentences are just commuted to life without parole. So he probably won't end up getting executed. All of his petitions and motions and attempt to appeal this last conviction have been denied. As recently as March of 2020, his conviction and sentence have been upheld. The Eastburns are trying to continue with their lives. When asked if he was mad about Tim Hennessy's 1989 acquittal, Gary said, yes, he's mad, but you have to move forward. And after this third trial and Hennessy's final conviction, Gary told the media that was waiting outside that their hearts went out to the Hennessy family because he knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like mm. to lose his whole family, pretty much. Yeah. Like. And they're just good people. The East Barnes are just good people. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're very, they seem very um, compassionate toward the Hennis family because, of course, you don't want to believe that somebody you love and have trusted and have looked up to and, you know, all these things could do the thing that he did, but he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. So that's it. That is it. Yeah, that was a roller coaster of emotion. But again, I do think, I mean, Hennis did this 
to everyone. He is this he's the cause of the ripple. Yes. And all for that second of pleasure. Yeah, that he just wanted to get off. Like, and I don't know why, like, if because his ex-girlfriend rejected his advances and he didn't mm-hmm. fly into a rage. I don't know if it's like he flew into a rage. He was so pissed about it, you know, it offended him or whatever. Or was it that she was also involved in the military? You know, she's a military spouse and he thought that she might report it and he would get in trouble with the military or something. I don't know. So he had to like, quote, had to, in his mind, get rid of any witnesses or evidence. Yeah, I have no idea. Such a fucking extreme reaction to Somebody being like, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. I just do not. Right. And it happens all the time. All the time. So sad. Yep. Well, thank you so very much for listening. And we will hopefully catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, you guys, we have some new patrons and we want to say like, hey girl, thanks to you. Yay. Yay. So, hey girl, thanks to Nikki Trombley, Harley McGregor, Amy Graham, Whitney Vaughn, Haley Sherman, Melissa Colfer, Pamela Elkins, Dixie Bishop, Jen Jones, Lisa Bull, Maria Olson, Kayla Coffey, Shelby Maragua, Laura Smith Haverly, Rachel Cross, Andrea Rivera, Katie Sharp, Caitlin Gunnan, Molly Johnson, and Janine. Yay! Thank you guys so much. We love you. Yay! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.